Let's hear the word of the Lord together. A reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 35, starting with verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The word of the Lord. James chapter 5, starting with verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the Father awaits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the name of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When John the Baptist heard in prison of the works of Christ, he sent his disciples to Jesus with this question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Jesus said to them in reply, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind regain their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and dead are raised. And the poor have the good news proclaimed to them. And blessed is the one who takes no offense at me. As they were going off, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? 
Then what did you go out to see? Someone dressed in fine clothing? Those who wear fine clothing are in royal palaces. Then why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messengers ahead of you. He will prepare the way before you. Amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been none greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The gospel of the Lord. good to be with you all today on this third Sunday of Advent. This Sunday is always a bit different, has a fancy name too, in Latin, Gaudete, which is always awkward for me to say with my Oklahoma accent, but um, this is, it means rejoice, uh, is what this word means. And historically, Advent was observed as a somber season. In fact, it was a lot like Lent in the church history. And this Sunday was intended as a time to celebrate in the midst of the somberness, in the midst of repentance. It is a time when we rejoice because the Lord is near. And because of this, our readings today focus on the joy of the coming kingdom. We've already read twice now uh, Mary's song, the Magnificat, when she hears the news that she's to give birth to the Son of God, that she sings this song, and it's a song of joy One of the things I love about this song is it's a song about the past. So God has been faithful to her people over and over again. It's a song about the present. God is being faithful right now. And then it is a song about the future. God will be faithful. And if you notice in the in the song, it you can't really tell whether it's talking about the past, the present, or the future. Or she bounces back and forth over and over again. Why? Because God is always faithful, past, present, and future. Over the past few weeks, we have seen several promises of God's new world in our Old Testament readings. No more war, no more crying or pain, predator and prey lying down together. And this is the kind of thing that we see in our Isaiah reading today as well. Specifically today, we hear of the contrast between a desert and the garden. When a new day comes, the wilderness or the desert rejoices and blossoms. The desert has become the garden. This is what God does, turning deserts into gardens. We're told about Lebanon, Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. Of course, we have a Lebanon, Tennessee. It's pronounced a little bit differently. My dad grew up in Lebanon, Indiana, and I have family that lives in Carmel, Indiana. So sometimes I get some synapses in my brain that respond whenever I, I read these words. But this is not what that's talking about. It's not Indiana or Tennessee or anything like that. This is um, these historic places of Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. Each of these places in the Middle East represents lush, fertile growth, life, and fruitfulness. This is what God's new world will be. These places, it says, will be able to see the glory of the Lord when he comes. So in the new world, seeing actually changes. Our perception of events changes. Now, God has been active and working all along. God is working in our midst no matter what it looks like, and no matter what we can see. But God's people have not had eyes to see it in the desert. Now they will see his glory in splendor. This is true of God in our lives. God is always near with us whether we feel him or not. But we can rejoice today because the Lord is here. Our eyes fail us at times, but we can trust his presence in sickness, in doubt, 
in prison and anxiety. And there will be a day when all sight will be restored. In this new world, it says weak hands and feeble knees are strengthened. God will save his people. This is interesting. In chapter 34, you know, you could read Isaiah 34 and 35 as a contrast. Isaiah 34 is about the desert. Isaiah 35 is about the garden. In Isaiah 34, the desert is described as a haunt of jackals. It's where the jackals live. Well, here it says, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And the author says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy for waters shall break, break forth in the wilderness and, the, and streams in the desert. So we have a picture here of God's healing. This is literally what Jesus does. As Jesus walks through Palestine, he opens the eyes of the blind. He unstops the ears of the deaf. Lame people leap for joy. Lepers are cleansed. Jesus is walking out in his life, Isaiah 35, walking out God's new world wherever he goes. And this is the world that we look forward to and we hope for, where we can see fully, where we can hear fully, where there are no misunderstandings, where the places that are now barren and desolate will be full of water. Of course, this isn't an uncommon hope. I mean, you could show Isaiah 35 to anyone of any religion or no religion, and we can share this kind of hope for the world. The difference is where the hope is placed. Some place our hope in human progress, that if we just keep achieving social and technological advances, everything will be right. But it's not just people of other faiths that have misplaced hope. We have misplaced hope often. In the church, we have often heard of hope as if it were escape, that we just need to get away from this world. We need to get to a utopian heaven and everything will be fine. But that's not the Christian story. The Christian story is unique in that Jesus entered the desert of our world. When we were afraid, he didn't fear. I was raised in a charismatic church tradition where, and I'm thankful for it, where we often emphasize God's physical healing, central to all that we did Sunday after Sunday. And we were taught to expect God's healing no matter what. In fact, if you are sick and you pray for a miracle and you don't see it, something is wrong. The Christian university in the city where I grew up and the one I later attended on their basketball court sidelines has painted, expect a miracle. Of course, there's something really good and true about this. Where God is present, things are put right. However, if this is the case, if God's world is here, just here for the taking, if, we're, if miracles are just there at every turn, why is not everyone healed? Why is there still in the world injustice and poverty and oppression? Well, the truth is, though God's new world has been inaugurated in Jesus, we do not yet see his reign in fullness. We still anticipate. This is tough for us to comprehend because we tend to think that, okay, if something is true, it should be experienced fully right now. Why do we have to wait? Yet this seems to be the way that God designed it. The kingdom remains hidden, breaking in here and there, growing until that day when Christ returns and we see his reign in fullness. 
In the ancient world, it was like a new king or a new emperor taking the throne of the entire kingdom. Sometimes it would take days or weeks or months for the news to reach the entire kingdom. So we live in this in-between time. It's like, as Rowan Williams writes, that surely, that surely is one of the most extraordinary mysteries of being Christian. We are in the middle of two things that seem quite contradictory. In the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the middle of a world of threat, suffering, sin, and pain. We even see this in the life of Jesus. That it doesn't seem that Jesus healed every person he encountered who was sick. He didn't merely fix pain. He entered into pain. See, a miracle in this world is never even an end in and of itself. Because people who are healed in this life miraculously still eventually die. So what is the purpose of a miracle? Well, a miracle is a glimpse, a foretaste of God's full rule and reign. A miracle is a sign of God's new reality. So when it doesn't happen, it doesn't mean God's not at work. It means something else is going on beyond what we can see. But miracles engender in us hope for that day when all will be healed. They give us a sense of how things will be, when death will be no more, when the king's reign will be experienced in fullness. And Isaiah continues in verse 9 by saying, no lion shall be there. No lion in the new world. It's not that God has anything against this creature called the lion, but it's for Israelites, lions represented Babylon. The ravenous beasts of which Isaiah speaks are the oppressors of God's people. So the good news is when God's reign is fully realized, not only will there be physical healing, there'll be no more oppression. People will no longer prey on other people. It doesn't take us too long to think about the implications of this for our world today. Big corporations which prey on the poor. Politicians bought by special interest groups. In God's new world, the predators will be gone. God's people are the redeemed and the rescued. Even after we have made a desert, he has reached down and rescued us. So the challenge here is not to put our hope in things that we can see our political structures, or even in ourselves. There's a difference between desert and garden. When we trust in ourselves or the things we think we can control, we get desert. But God makes deserts into gardens. Our James reading speaks to that patience as well. While the people in the time of Isaiah are waiting for a return to the promised land, waiting for a Messiah, many, many years later, the people of the early church, after the resurrection, are waiting with patience for Christ's return. James, when he talks about being patient, he's not arguing for the simple moral virtue of patience. He's very specific in what he's saying for. The Lord is coming soon as judge. Be patient for him. The reason for this is there'll be many opportunities for this early church, this messianic community, when they're oppressed by the outside world to react with violence, to respond with violence. This is true not only for first century Christians, but for Christians throughout the history of the world. When they face resistance, we can use the ways of the world to respond back or we can choose something different. So after the initial calling to be patient, James uses an, an analogy. He says, waiting for the coming of the Lord is like waiting for the precious crop from the earth. Now, 
in our community in East Nashville, uh, we're not really an agricultural community. We, we don't have a whole lot of, of you who are farmers around here. Uh, any farmers here? No? Okay, I assume there's not, right? But, well, I was just going to, I was actually going to talk about the chickens. Some of y'all have chickens and some of y'all have fabulous gardens. Cullens, y'all have really nice gardens, right? Um, but, but we don't have any farmers in the house. And for the most part, we don't spend our lives tilling the soil and waiting for crops from the earth. That's just not what we do. We get our crops from the grocery store typically, right? Yet it's important to remember that this is how much of the world lived, waiting for the crops, waiting for their sustenance, for their sustaining, waiting for harvest time. And waiting does something to us. I read something this week about boredom and the importance of boredom, which I hate because I don't really like being bored. But, but boredom does something in us. It changes our imagination, cultivates something in us. Waiting does something to us. The discipline of patience is not just what we wait for. It's about what happens to us as we wait. We're shaped by trust. The waiting process does that to us. And much of life is about patience. We are to be patient with creation. So the goal is not to just squeeze as much out of creation as we can, all the resources that we can, but allow God to sustain us through the world in his timing. James says we're called to be patient towards one another, not grumbling with each other. And the truth is when we're impatient with God, we become impatient with one another. When we sit around and wonder why God has not fixed this thing or why our life has not worked out the way that we thought it would, why he hasn't allowed me to be further along in this area, we become snippy with our spouse, with our kids, with our neighbors and our friends. We start grumbling about other people in the church. That cranky neighbor that you have may be cranky because they're wrestling with God about something. Your child may be throwing a fit because they actually feel scared or lonely. They're not sure why the world is the way it is. When you find yourself lashing out towards someone, check your posture toward God. What needs or desires have gone unfulfilled? Where do you feel like God has let you down? We're called to be patient with God. It's not patience because God is slow, but because God takes time or things take time to blossom and grow, and they all, almost always take longer than we want them to. Um, I, I share this from experience. Patience has been something that I've needed to learn in my life. These wonderful past nine years of my life, and hopefully many, many more of pastoring Sacrament Church, have been so much about patience, about allowing myself to be tr shaped by trust, Ashley and I moved out here in 2013 to plant Sacrament Church. And as many church planters do, I was very confident. <laughs> I had a few formulas I was working with, even though I would say I wasn't about formulas. We had certain patterns that we had. I had expectations. I remember some old things that I said to people. Is, I said, well, you know, the, the church is going to grow to about 100 people pretty fast, and then we're going to plant more churches in, in the area. And I would say with confidence, well, you know, I never want to have a church of more than 300 people, right? So we're going to cap it at that, as if that was going to be the real easy thing. The hard thing was going to be to, um, to change my expectations. I didn't know what I was saying. <laughs> well, as our church unfolded, it's been totally drastically different from what 30-year-old Preston expected. I have taken a different journey than I've expected. 
I've become an Anglican priest in this whole thing, <laughs> which was not what we uh, led out to do. Um, it's been fits and starts. But over time, what I found is I began to change. We began to change. My wants began to change. My definition of what a, what a church is, what a successful church is, began to change. And gosh, I am so blessed and so thankful for this community. Now, I think we get, get to the end of the year and we start getting reflective. We had our Christmas party last night and start to get reflective. And I am so thankful for you. And I look back and I thank God that we, our formulas didn't work. <laughs> and I'm thankful for who God has created us to be. Okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to move on from that. <laughs> this plant is growing and we have roots and we're blossoming. But patience, whatever that is in your life, is only possible because Jesus himself was patient. He didn't cut corners to the kingdom. Instead, he took the way to the cross, forgiving and loving. Jesus was not impatient with the Father's plan. He suffered and he waited. Why are we patient? James says, because the judge is at the door. When the judge is at the door, it's simultaneously scary and wonderful. It's scary because vulnerability is scary. When you share something shameful or difficult with someone, you feel exposed. Facing the judge is scary in that way. We're opening ourselves up. Everything in our lives is exposed in God's presence. But the beauty is in what God does with that. He forgives and he heals us. Sure, we're exposed, but we're exposed to the one who is love. Most Sundays, we begin all of our services with what's called the Collect for Purity. You may not have known the name before, but we pray this every Sunday. It's, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. And from you, no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. This collect of purity is the prayer of the one who stands before the judge, the true judge, the one we know to be good all the way through. We know we need a judge to set things right, both in our lives and in the world. But we also know that this one true judge is good and has our best interest in mind. In our gospel reading, we're given a second John the Baptist story, which again, I always have to point out how funny that is. We go into Advent and we expect to hear the stories about the nativity and about the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. And we're given in the lectionary John the Baptist a lot. John doesn't show up in our Christmas decorations. He's not on our Christmas trees. He's not on our cards or our Advent calendars. But he takes the spotlight the first two weeks of the Advent lectionary. Maybe we avoid John in our celebrations because he doesn't fit nicely into our merriment. In a story that's supposed to be calm and bright, John is wild and irritating. Last week, we talked about John's calling to repentance, how he called out the Jewish leaders and he called them brood of vipers. John has been the one who, from the very beginning of his life, has been called to declare the coming of the arrival of God. And this week, our, reader, our reading takes us further along in the story. So John is in prison. He's actually on death row because he ticked off the governor, Herod. He's been preaching really fiery sermons, but he's been basically saying Herod's an imposter. He's not living. He married his, married his brother's wife. He has done things that we shouldn't expect from a leader of ours. And so, of course, Herod didn't like that very much. So he arrested John, getting ready to kill him. 
John has spent his entire life pointing to Jesus, and now he's sitting in prison and he's disappointed. He's perhaps expecting more fire from Jesus. Jesus, why aren't you acting like a Messiah? But notice it says he's bothered by what Jesus is doing, not by what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is going around befriending tax collectors and sinners. John may think that Jesus should focus on the judgment part, the fire, the brimstone. And in a sense, he will. But perhaps John thinks that Jesus will be a man of fire, an Elijah-like character who will sweep through Israel as Elijah had when he dealt with the prophets of Baal. Perhaps John looked forward to the day when Jesus would topple Herod's rule, release John from prison, and give him a place of honor in the new kingdom. But Jesus is ahead of John in the story. They're following the same story, but Jesus is ahead in the script. He's focused on restoration. Mercy is breaking in. It's not just judgment, but along with judgment comes mercy if it's the one true God. Jesus does bring judgment on the world, but in a strange twist of events, Jesus takes the punishment for judgment on himself. In Jesus, judgment and mercy are always weaved together. So when John asks, hey, are you really the one or should we look for somebody else? He's saying, I have doubts. I'm struggling because your kingdom doesn't look like I thought it would look. We often, you know, Jesus is not living up to John's expectations and God is really bad at meeting our expectations. (laughs) It's because he has better things for us. We think that this is the way things should work, and he's always surprising us and messing things up. John is expecting revolution, the fiery overthrow of the powers that be, but Jesus is patient, suffering, and self-giving, and he's bringing people back home. So Jesus quotes our Isaiah text, and he asks John, are you seeing the rule and reign of God in my life? Are you seeing the things that would happen if God was in charge? Blind people see, lame walk. This is what it's about. It's about the liberating mercies of God. This is what it's always been about. And yet there's also resistance. Jesus said, blessed are those who take no offense from me. The Southern writer Flannery O'Connor says, as to natural grace, we have to take that the way it comes, through nature. In any case, it operates surrounded by evil. In other words, grace always incites a reaction. Wherever God's love and mercy and goodness and joy is present, there's always the forces that come against that. John may be struggling with his own situation. Great, miracles are happening, Jesus. You're healing people, God's moving, marginalized people are being set free. But did you remember that I'm in prison? What what about me? I think this is a reminder to all of us that our present circumstances are not an indication of whether or not God is at work. God may be working and you may still be in prison. It's natural this would cause doubt, but it's not the whole story because the nature of God's kingdom is that it is hidden. It is like the seed that is growing. Jesus then shares a cryptic illustration about his relation to John. So he asks the crowd, what did you go out in the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? 
Jesus is likely referring a reed shaken on the wind was the emblem on Herod's coins. So did you come out to see a, ru- a ruler like Herod? But John was not like Herod. He said, did you come to see somebody dressed in fancy clothes like a governor would be? John's not like Herod. He doesn't wear the fancy clothes. John is a prophet, but he's not just any prophet. He's, one of the, he's the one that the other prophets would promise would someday come. He's there to prepare the way for the Messiah. This cryptic passage about John is a way of Jesus telling the people that he is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah without directly coming out and saying it. Notice that Jesus does that. He, he never pushes himself on people. He hints and he points. He gives them clues to work out for themselves. And honestly, I think this is how the church is called to operate. We're not the people who go around with a megaphone saying, we're God's people, or we're taking our country back, or we're the ones who ought to be running the show. No, it's better that we live in such a way that God's rule and reign is present in our lives, that it stirs questions, that we're able to respond in such a way that points the world to Jesus. And we have an opportunity, I think, especially in a changing cultural landscape, to live in a way that's patient, not like the empires and the talking heads. We have the opportunity to live out the good news that is restoration and healing. We have the opportunity to live in such a way that serves questions. When we live in the way of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, our faith will stick out and may just shake the world. I want to read a quote here from Fleming Rutledge. I'm just about done. Uh, But she writes this. She says, The mystery of God's activity in the world is that the tiny signs of faithfulness and love and mercy and hope, the tiny signs enacted by the Christian community, are the pointers to the glory that will come when the Lord takes his power to himself. This is not the way I would have done it. It's not the way you would have done it. No wonder we take offense. You and I would have made it obvious so that it would have stunned everybody and made argument and questioning irrelevant. But the glory of Lebanon, which one day will break over the universe in a crescendo of song from the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, that glory is secreted for the time being in the small deeds and the little prayers of the church of God. That is the way God planned it, for reasons that we shall someday understand in the kingdom of God. On this Gaudete Sunday, we are invited into the joy of transformation, the reality of patience, and the promise of God's new world, the one who turns deserts into gardens, the faithful one. He is the one who opens eyes and unstops ears. God's new world will be characterized by gladness and joy, Sorrow and sighing will fall away. This is a future reality, but it's broken in the world now through Christ's resurrection and lives in us. And this means that there's no desert too parched, no land too barren, no life too far gone for the new life which God brings. Our longing for justice is like a farmer waiting for the land to yield crop, but we don't need to fear because the judge is at the door. While judgment is uncomfortable, it is also good news because God is good and he's the one who makes things right. 
And in the meantime, and I want to say this clearly, God's not afraid of our questions, that he sits with us in the midst of our questions. He's not afraid of our doubts, of our wonderings, about the ways that um, we've gone astray. Along with judgment, there's also mercy. In his very person, Jesus is calling judgment on the world, but he's taken the consequences of judgment upon himself. So today, in the simple act of the pink candle, we are reminded that joy breaks into pain. God is at work in the world no matter what it looks like. Sometimes we look for hope in the wrong places. And in what ways is that a struggle for us today? May God open our eyes to his kingdom. May he strengthen our weak hands when we falter in our calling to share his grace. May he strengthen our feeble knees when we struggle to pray. May he correct our misunderstandings and our misapprehensions. May God give us patience with the world he's made, with those to our right and to our left, and ultimately with God himself. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.